podcast of the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry. I'm your host, Dr. Paulo Salas from the University of Alabama at Birmingham on a series of HIV psychiatry with a specialist with us, Dr. Mike Sack. We have some clinical updates for us to discuss today on uh, neuropsychiatric effects of antiretroviral non-adherence, among other topics. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Sag. And I also have two of my excellent residents, Dr. Reed Black and Dr. Brendan Benefield. Hello there, folks. Say hello to the audience. Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. Glad to have everyone together again. So uh, on this episode, uh, we're going to discuss a topic that our SIG is working actively, and there's an article coming on the pipeline, so stay tuned for that too. This material was produced for educational informational purposes. Presenters are responsible for their expressed opinions, which do not constitute specific medical advice in a given case. Is there any financial disclosures that any of us need to make? I'm a grant recipient of... uh clinical trials money from Gilead Sciences and from Vive Healthcare. That's pretty much it. Sounds good. I don't have any financial disclosures. Dr. Black, do you have any financial disclosures? No. Dr. Benefield, any financial disclosures? No, I do not. Thank you very much. And then uh, this is a podcast from the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, 2022, all rights reserved. I think uh, that there are a few questions that Dr. Benefield will actually ask us to initiate the discussion. Yeah, I think one strategy that I'm very curious about myself, especially as a uh, soon-to-be graduating resident, is what strategies can a psychiatrist use to help maximize patient adherence with ART? Um, it's one thing I'm particularly interested in. I'm also curious to hear what you have to say about that. But uh, from a psychiatric perspective, I think focusing on relationships is my go-to for situations like this, right? Like uh, Dr. Sag mentioned in our previous episode, social networks can be involved in demoralization, right? So how does your family respond to that with this new information of the virus being positive and present in your body? I think that could be a big antidote that we can foster as mental health providers when tackling demoralization, trying to have genuine interest on our patients' cultural and spiritual factors. So uh, making sure that they have their needs met. Sometimes it's transportation and they're too ashamed to uh, ask for help and come for the visit. We, we need to think simple. We need to think realistic and we need to think patient-centered, right? I would start with that uh, in terms of maximizing the adherence uh, to the medications. I also think that uh, frequently neglected, especially in the asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment, we need to be thinking of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, and it, it can also be intertwined with substance use. If you think of cannabis abuse and other and other substances that people can utilize that lead to cognitive disturbances, we need to have an honest conversation with our patients and their families to capture that information and make sure that this is not a factor leading to a motivation or to distractibility or other potentially reversible factors that would improve with proper treatment. Uh, and uh, like I said, targeting your patient would be my go-to. Some people, for example, prefer to have a group psychotherapy setting or individual psychotherapy setting uh, if they're struggling with depression, for example. Uh, so I think that removing the psychiatric comorbidities is our role as a psychiatrist providing care for people living with HIV. We need to address these comorbidities to allow the infectious disease and the remaining aspects of the team to work hard suppressing the virus and making sure that all of the other comorbidities, the syndemics, are being properly addressed. And then uh, finally, this is a big time a reflection that I have every day when I come to work. We need to be appreciative of our preconceptions and biases. We, we are people, we are humans. And as doctors, uh, we need to appreciate that we have our own inclinations on perceiving things a certain way and avoiding certain topics or certain behaviors or certain things that we should be doing with our patients on a daily basis. And uh, the way we can address our misconceptions and biases is by having mentorship, 
by having colleagues, by having uh, true relationships who can be genuine with us and share, hey, I think you're not uh, doing what standard of care is for a patient like this. And it takes a lot of courage for someone to say that. So I would recommend to have a culture of acceptance and kindness to your own self as a person to appreciate misconceptions, preconceptions, and biases that we all have as humans. From a primary care perspective in HIV medicine, I look at the biofeedback, which is the viral load. It tells us pretty immediately whether somebody is keeping up with their antiretroviral regimen or not. So we focus on that. At the very beginning, we really emphasize adherence on that very first visit and describe the biology of what antiretroviral therapy does. From a psychiatrist's perspective, you don't have that opportunity, but that's what we try to do. But yet, despite our best efforts, a lot of folks end up falling off the wagon and and starting to uh, not to skip medicines or not take their medicines. And so we can notice that with the viral load, uh, what we routinely do. And what I like to use in that setting is what a colleague of mine at Johns Hopkins in psychiatry, Glenn Treesman says, and refers to as confrontation with a smile. He says, hey, I noticed your viral load is up again. What's up with that? And you kind of smile as you say it so that they don't feel threatened, but it really does give them an opportunity. They they want to please. The fact that they're at their visit tells you that it's important. The people I worry most about are those who miss their visits. But when they show up, I first off thank them for coming in. Hey, you're here. That means a lot to me. And that builds trust. I worried about you last visit. You weren't here. What was going on? Can you share that with me? I'm really so glad you're here, but I noticed that your viral load is up again. Tell me what's happening and then listen to the story and then do your intervention. A lot of times, as we've already mentioned, can be underlying comorbid psychiatric disorders. It, I've seen patients, obviously, with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder and primary depression are much more common than that. But understanding that and having the teamwork, having a relationship with the HIV psychiatrist is essential. And up to 40 to 50% of our patients in our clinic have some form of a psychiatric disorder or neurocognitive problems, things that we need to work with other healthcare professionals, especially in the realm of HIV psychiatry. And that's so important to helping patients reach their uh, treatment objectives. I really agree with what you said, Mike. And also, I usually say in my clinical practice, hey, you accept that you speak to me, right? So that tells me something. So if even if a patient is angry, anger and love are substrates for us to work through things. And we need to process things, right? And if people avoid and are indifferent, then I can't help them. So I'm glad that the patient shows and we should appreciate that, like you said, Mike. And I think that's an excellent starting point for treatment efforts that we can offer. Yeah, I think even outside of that, honestly, it's interesting we talk about you know, resistance to antiretrovirals and things. In, in psychiatry, we talk about resistance all the time with the patient where they don't want to confront a certain topic. And so us addressing it, your your idea of confrontation with a smile is, is pretty pretty useful, I believe, for a lot of these patients, I think. Kind of in a similar vein, I guess my question for you, Dr. Sag, would be, I've had patients personally where they've come in and they're either acutely manic or psychotic and they're in general very challenging to get a good history from recently. They maybe can't give the best kind of most reliable history. In these patients, should I assume that I need to restart their ART immediately? Or what are the current guidelines about patients, you know, for initiation of treatment in in these kinds of patients? This falls into the realm of harm reduction. So 
yes, our goal is to get them on antiretroviral therapy, either at the beginning or if they've fallen off the wagon to get them back on. But we've got to use our clinical judgment. A lot of times patients who maybe have an underlying bipolar disorder and they've been off their bipolar meds will come in in a manic state. You're not going to get much accomplished there until you get their psychiatric illness under control. More commonly, though, I'm going to see somebody who's on substances and especially methamphetamine. A lot of times they're in denial. Uh, You can sort of tell they've got that what I call look in their eye. They've lost weight. They look disheveled. I'm not going to push the antiretroviral therapy at that point until I get the other aspects of their illness under control. In this case, it's substance use disorder. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We're here to sort of go for the long-term goal. Now, I will have them come back more frequently. I'll work with my psychiatry colleagues, try to get the bipolar illness under control, maybe the schizophrenia under control, the substance use under control. But I'm not going to try to force antiretroviral therapy in this setting until the psychiatric illness is managed better. And there's another uh, condition like that it can be quite a zebra, you know, for some of us. It, it is debatable for some, but I have seen it myself in my experience, AIDS mania. When you have someone with a terribly low CD4 indicating that they're not connected uh, to proper antiretroviral treatment, they come with frank manic presentations. I can throw all the lithium, valproic acid, lamotrigine. I can throw everything on the planet. The patient will remain manic until I can get the viral load suppressed. So I think that that would be a case that I would recommend in patient admission to a medical floor, addressing the comorbidities, stabilizing that HIV infection so we can get the bipolar symptoms also along with it under control. And uh, some research indicates that it could be linked to tryptophan catabolite abnormalities as well. So that's quite an interesting field for research. And it's one of my favorite factoids in psychiatry, actually. Yeah, I've seen that too. And it's not common. But when you see it, it certainly gets your attention. One of the things that I'll also mention as an amateur psychiatrist uh, in the HIV clinic is the number one thing that I try to explore is how are they sleeping? Do they have a sleep disorder? Because it's hard to get everything else under control if they're not sleeping well. Uh, So that's just my other little tidbit of help that I focus on before I really start pushing the antiretroviral therapy hard. That's very helpful for me too. I think that uh, at times, I felt silly aging, maybe the ID fellow saying, hey, I've got this patient who's been on the show. Go ahead and restart this today or wait. I just wanted to make sure. So I appreciate that extra information. And then I guess kind of in the same lines with ART, Dr. Salas said, do you know any commonly preferred ART treatments that are maybe most associated with neuropsychiatric side effects? Like example, what HIV medicines should a psychiatrist keep on their radar? Uh, I know we, we mentioned efavirenz before, but anything else in particular you might want to touch upon? So we did talk about efavirenz, and it's associated with a lot of uh, neuropsych issues, especially depression. One thing that we have noticed, it could be actually an advantage, is that people that are on a ritonavir-based regimen or a cobacistat-based regimen, those drugs inhibit strongly the CYP3A4 isoenzyme system of the liver. And a lot of drugs, especially psych drugs, are metabolized that way. In a backhanded way, that's I've used that to my advantage where I can use a lower dose of an SSRI and get effect. But the thing to watch for as we switch people off of a ritonavir-based regimen, for example, and they're on a stable sort of happy dose, if you will, of an SSRI, you switch them over to bictegravir or dalutegravir that does not have the interaction with CYP3A4 or 2D6, 
you notice that they get depressed because they we didn't concomitantly increase their SSRI dose to make up for the absence now of the ritonavir. So those are the things that I think jump to the forefront of my mind about management of especially depression and other things where I have to use psychiatric meds to watch for those interactions. Yeah, Mike, I mean, from what you're hearing, I can imagine someone driving their car now and their head is spinning, 2D6, 3A4. Uh, I think there's a lot of letters. So uh, perhaps we can dedicate an episode in the future, you know, to talk about these more common interactions, how you can boost things and the different regimens. And if everyone is interested in learning more about that, like I said, our textbook on HIV psychiatry, A Practical Guide for Clinicians, from Dr. James Bourgeois and other collaborators editing. If you want to go for the book, uh, you can definitely see some tables on the antipsychotics, SSRIs, SNRIs, and other medications that frequently interact in the HIV care. So stay tuned for the pocketbook, which is coming hopefully next year. And uh, Dr. Benningfield, you seem to be quite calm right now, so I have a bomb to throw at your lap. You're about to graduate as a resident and perhaps become a CL fellow shortly. So I want you to ask you a question. In our service, we often see a strong association between HIV and depression. In fact, up to 30% of people living with HIV can actually have depression. So from your clinical experience and learning as a resident, what do you think are the proposed mechanisms and drivers behind this strong association? Well, I'm so glad to be asked this question, Dr. Salas. I appreciate you giving me the chance to answer. Um, I know there's a variety of mechanisms. Obviously, this is not my area of expertise per se, but even when I was trying to brush up on the subject for this podcast, I came across a lot of inflammatory markers and inflammation of HIV itself as the primary cause for some of these issues. In addition, obviously, the neurocognitive decline that comes with some of these and the CNS disease that can go along. But I was surprised to see how much of a primary issue HIV as a virus can be from a depression standpoint. In addition, obviously, there's a bunch of comorbid issues related to stigma, um, not only from the patient populations that are associated with it and, and whether or not they'll even try to access care or if they have good access to care. In addition, I know the substance use and medical confounders, in particular, you know, the association between HIV, Hep C, Hep B, and also those alone with depression, just methamphetamine use and other syndemics like you've mentioned. One pearl that I'll throw out there, you we had talked in the last episode about CD4 counts, but especially the CD4, CD8 ratio. And what I failed to mention is that a low CD4, CD8 ratio, that is a low CD4 count, but a high CD8 count, is associated with increased inflammatory markers. You can take that to the bank. And so if you took quartiles or quintiles of CD4, CD8 ratio numbers, those in the lowest quartile are the ones who have the highest inflammatory markers, even when their HIV viral load is fully suppressed. So there seems to be some damage done by the virus before you even treat that carries forward to an ongoing stimulation of the immune system and the production of inflammatory markers. Then those inflammatory markers and those that inflammation interferes a lot of times with the function of the limbic system, as we mentioned last episode, and can be a causal pathway for depression or other issues. I just want to add to your excellent discussion, Dr. Benningfield and Dr. Seg. In HIV in particular, like Dr. Seg has mentioned, uh, that there could be a called an inflammatory signature. And in interestingly enough, if you have a pairing in between inflammation and behaviors, one can lead to the other. Certain behaviors leading to certain inflammatory responses and vice versa. So then you go into this vicious cycle in which as time progresses and the chronic inflammation persists, 
if you don't treat depression, it gets harder and harder to get out of it. So that's why it's so important to be so aggressive, treating with both medications, psychotherapy, social systemic interventions, to break the cycle early on and try to diminish as much as possible the amount of inflammation people struggle with when they're living with HIV, despite viral suppression. And I just want to add another factoid, Dr. Benefi, to your excellent discussion. Some people can have HIV reservoirs. So even though you don't see any viral load on the periphery, sometimes strains develop that are just present in the central nervous system and other immune sanctuaries. Presence of the virus in these places can lead to increased inflammation and predispose people to depression as well. So that's another thing we need to be reminded of, especially in cases of treatment-resistant depression, that you have tried everything. Dr. Seg, I think it's time for us to try to summarize the, the, the topics we discussed in our podcast series. Fire away what you have for the high-yield infectious disease that every psychiatrist should know. Well, I think emphasizing the importance of viral load and trying to get every patient to have an undetectable viral load is, is really important and to sustain that for all the reasons that we had discussed. And antiretroviral therapy is the cornerstone of, of achieving that uh, state. We also talked about the importance of co-infections like hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And for those who have hepatitis B, want to make sure that the antiretroviral therapy contains a tenofovir-based regimen because that'll keep the hepatitis B under control. And for every patient who has hepatitis C, we should strive to cure them using the direct active agents. And then finally, I think this intersection of HIV and psychiatric uh, disorders understanding that we want to treat both, get the HIV under control, but using teamwork, using a collaborative practice where the psychiatrist, the psychologist, social workers, HIV providers are all on the same team. And for example, at our clinic, but a lot of the Ryan White clinics around the country have this model. And it's really the envy of most primary care providers who do not have anything that comes close to approximating that. And that's from the Ryan White Care Act that gives that additional funding to assure coverage of that gap that allows us to uh, enable all of us to work together. Absolutely. So on my side of things, thinking of neuropsychiatric disorders and comorbidities observed in people living with HIV, I just want to remind our audience about the concept of syndemics, that people living with HIV have comorbid conditions, and one interacts with the other to create unique presentations that can be quite difficult to treat unless you address it systemically at multiple levels. We need to be mindful of a drug-drug and drug-disease interactions uh, for this population, as well as to be screening actively for substance use disorders, depression, and cognitive changes, uh, as this may significantly interfere with their adherence to uh, the appointments, medications, and then like uh, Dr. Sag mentioned, the non-adherence will lead to detectable viral loads, and that could be a biofeedback marker for you to be sure about the quality of your treatment. We also need to be honest with our own biases, and I mean it. This is, I think, one of the most important messages I have for us, because as practice goes along and we start to get busy reading about evidence-based medicine, I think sometimes we put on second place psychodynamic aspects of our own practice, and we need to be reflective about our own biases and inclinations when providing care to our patients. I also want to emphasize what Dr. Sack mentioned about the collaborative care. And if you want to learn more about it, there are over 300 pages of knowledge you can get from that book I mentioned. And I don't, I don't want to be boring, but I mean it. It's 300 pages of knowledge. If you want to learn more about it, you have this and the pocket book will be coming soon. 
And I hope that everyone at home or driving your car, you can go back home safe. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, the Executive Board, the Online Education Subcommittee, everyone involved to make this podcast possible. I really appreciate all the support. And I hope to have next episodes on neuropsychiatric side effects of the antiretroviral medications, among other topics of your interest. Stay tuned. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you.